If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter this morning. And if it seems like it's been a long time since we've been in Mark, that's because it's been a long time since we've been in Mark. We did a four-week series in December on canticles, the psalms, the songs, the prophecies there at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And I'm going to review a little bit because it's been a while, but I'm going to begin by reading our passage. So if you found it, please stand, and I'm going to read Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do ask that you would speak to us, just as we sang a few moments ago, that you would root us and ground us in the truth of your word. We thank you that we have it available to us, that we can understand it in our own language, that we can study it, that we, many of us, have multiple copies of it. Online, we have many copies available to us, and that is a privilege, Lord. There are places in this world where there is not a translation available or it's illegal to have a copy of the scriptures. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we can read it and study it together this morning. And we pray for those who do not have that access, that you would provide it to them, that you would provide translations, that you provide missionaries to them. Lord, as we study this passage that is somewhat familiar to us, we ask that you would give us understanding, teach us new things. May we see wondrous things in your law today. Lord, for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit that you would anoint me to speak your word, that it would be clear, that it would be accurate, that it would be exactly what you have for us this morning. And it would give us ears to hear that we would hear, not just for the sake of learning new facts, not just for the sake of checking off a box that we went to church, but that we would hear this morning with a desire for you to show us what we need to do so that we would not just be hearers, but that we would doers of your word. Lord, we ask for your help to that end, that you would bless your word, that you would accomplish what you want in it, through it, to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
did reading this passage seem a little bit like deja vu this morning? Like, didn't we already do this? And yes, it could seem that way. Maybe you've read it recently. There, there are all four Gospels that give us the feeding of the 5,000 and two Gospels that give us the feeding of the 4,000. So say this is just a different theological perspective of the same event. No, it's two separate events. Why do I say that? Because that's what the Bible has. And when we get to it next time, we're going to see that Jesus refers to the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as separate events. Jesus thought they were separate. He was there. He was the one doing the miracle. So I take his word for it that there were two separate events. But I would like to show you some similarities and differences. I'm not showing you this table because I want you to write it down. You may not even be able to see it. It may be too small. Hopefully it's big enough for you to see, but I'll, I'll talk through it. There are differences in these passages. First, the setting. For the feeding of the 5,000, we were in Galilee near Bethsaida, and now we're in the Decapolis. We'll talk about that. The recipients of the feeding of the 5,000 were primarily Jews, and here they were primarily Gentiles for the feeding of the 4,000. The time frame, the feeding of the 5,000 all occurred in a day. They gathered, Jesus taught them, he fed them, he sent them away, all in one day. Here they had been with him three days. He was, we presume, teaching them, working miracles. On the third day, we read the events that we're studying today. How did Jesus know they were hungry? Who, who told whom? Well, the disciples told Jesus, in the case of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is telling his disciples, alerting them to the situation in this passage. The food itself that was miraculously distributed. Before we had five loaves and two fish, today we have seven loaves and a few fish. Where did they get the food? Well, last time it was from a boy who had that as his lunch or his snack. This time the disciples themselves seemed to be the source of those seven loaves and a few fish. In the first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus blessed and broke the food. Here it seems, according to Mark, that he prayed twice. What about the leftovers? Well, there were 12 baskets with the 5,000, and there were seven large baskets with the 4,000, and then that brings me to the last point, how they're most different. The crowd size, there were 5,000 men, we read back earlier in Mark. Here we read that there were 4,000, and we know from the parallel account in Matthew 15 that there were 4,000 men besides the women and children. So they're definitely distinct events. And because of that, I'm not looking at this as just a repetition. We do need repetition, right? I need reminders. I forget. I need to read it over and over. I need to study it. But I don't think that's the only reason that Jesus did it twice. So what I'm suggesting to you is that there is a reason this is here, and we need to discover it together this morning. We need to figure out why is there a similar miracle. One of my commentators said there could have been many times that Jesus miraculously fed large groups of people. That's true. We don't know. But there are two that are in the Bible. And we're going to see what God has for us in this feeding of the 4,000 from Mark chapter 8 today. I have three main points for you. First, Christ knows your need. He knows your need. Whoever you are, in this room, online, he knows your need. But just knowing your need doesn't matter so much. He cares. He desires to do something about it. He desires to meet your need. That's the second point. Christ cares about your need. And then third, he doesn't just care about it. He doesn't just do something. He supplies. He satisfies our needs. And we're going to see all three of those ideas as we study through this. 
So go back with me, please, to verse 1. We're going to work verse by verse through this passage. And the first phrase in chapter 8, verse 1 says, in those days. Not very specific, is it? Again, Mark does offer us details, but he's, he's more of a, a big idea person, it seems, which fits because I think Peter was probably more that way. But he says, in those days, that points back to a previous visit to Decapolis. So by way of review, if you have your Bible or can scroll up a page, turn back a few pages, I'd like you to look with me at a previous occasion when Jesus was in the Decapolis area. Mark chapter 5. Go back to Mark chapter 5. And we aren't going to read the entire passage because we've studied it together. I've preached on it. This is when Jesus cleansed the demon-possessed man. Remember the guy who dwelt in the tombs and had been bound with chains and could break the chains, and, and he ran around naked and, and shrieked all day? That guy. And when Jesus cast out that demon or those demons, they went into the pigs. And the pigs ran down into the sea and drowned. Remember the story? That's the part I'm not reading to you right now. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. And we talked about that at the time. He may have been asking, could I be one of your disciples? Could I follow you? He asks to be with Jesus, verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. And here's what you need to tell them. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in, here it is, Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So you got that in your mind? The people of that area, the Decapolis, wanted Jesus to leave. Why? Because you are going to wreck our economy if you stay. You already cost us hundreds or thousands of dollars in our pigs. You need to leave. That was their attitude. And the man who was demon-possessed wanted to go with Jesus. Could I please go with you? And he says, no. You need to go tell people what I've done for you. Now, this is not in the Bible. But I believe that the man obeyed. Why? Because when we get to the next section, we're going to read from chapter 7 in just a second, he came back and they didn't run him out of town. They didn't say, we told you to stay away. We love our pigs more than we love you. Stay away. They, they welcomed him. Why? Because this man has, had done what Jesus told him to do. He said, go tell people. He was the first missionary to the Gentiles, folks. That's what I think. Not clearly spelled out in Scripture, so I don't mean to press it too far. But this man was told, go tell everybody what I've done for you. And it says, all marveled. That was the first time. Now, last time we were in Mark, I know that was the end of November, so it's been a while, we read that they got back to Decapolis. So this is chapter 7, verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis, there it is, to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, 
Ephathra, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Jesus is back. They're happy for him to be there, and it seems like there are people believing on him. Maybe they went and saw him other places, because we know when he was in Nazareth, or sorry, in Galilee, there were people coming to him from all over, including the Decapolis, so that could be part of it. But one way or another, the people in the capitalists are hearing. Is it the guy who was demon-possessed? Maybe. Is it other people who've gone and seen Jesus perform miracles? Maybe. I don't know. But they are receptive of him, and they are believing in him, and they are bringing their sick, their lame, their dumb, their deaf. And he heals. That wasn't primarily why I was there. We read earlier he was trying to hide himself somewhat in Gentile territory. He had withdrawn with his disciples for the sake of teaching them and self-preservation because there were already religious leaders, particularly from Jerusalem, who wanted to kill him. He wasn't keeping the Sabbath. He wasn't washing his hands like he was supposed to, and he was letting his disciples break these terrible rules. So the people of Decapolis are open. They are eager. And that gets us back to, I'm still in verse 1. I've gotten three words in. The main point, Christ knows your need. It came to pass in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat. There's the need. Jesus knows that there's a need. Mark is commenting on it right now. He's setting the stage for us. The multitude was very great. Why? Probably because of the miracle that Jesus had just done. And they're telling everybody, Jesus had healed a deaf and mute man, and they're excited. So they are coming, and they are probably seeing him do more miracles and certainly hearing him teach, and they're staying with him, but they have nothing to eat. They're out of food. So there is a need there. And verse 1 continues and tells us more about the fact that Christ cares about your need. Jesus called his disciples. Come here, guys. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. There are multiple times in the book of Mark, and certainly in all the Gospels, where it says that Jesus had compassion. But here, and in Matthew 15, we have the only time Jesus ever said of himself, I have compassion. So what is he saying when he says, I have compassion? See, earlier, chapter 1, Mark said that Jesus was moved with compassion. He touched the leper and cleansed him. Chapter 6, before the feeding of the 5,000, he was moved with compassion toward the Jewish multitude because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them many things. Please get this. If the Bible says Jesus had compassion for somebody... Something's about to happen. If you read Jesus say, I have compassion. If you read Mark or Luke or John, and it says he had compassion on the multitude. He had compassion on this man or this woman. He's about to act. Why? Because as I told you when we came across this word back in chapter 6, compassion is love in action. It acts. 
It means to have mercy, to feel sympathy, to have pity. It's something that you feel in your gut, in the pit of your stomach. You hear about a tragedy and you feel it. That's, that's the word here. Compassion is an emotion, yes. As a matter of fact, if you go through four, all four Gospels and write down all the times that Jesus is described as having emotion, because remember, fully God, fully man, he has emotions. The one you're going to come across the most is this idea of compassion. He is feeling, emoting, empathizing with people. Compassion is an emotion I feel that results in an action I do. It's an emotion I feel that results in an action I do. A teacher I had in college, I, I listened to a sermon he preached on this passage this week. His name is Greg Mazak, and he said this, Biblical compassion always leads to an act of mercy. Biblical compassion always leads to an act of mercy. It must. If it doesn't lead to an act of mercy, it's not compassion. We had a scripture reading earlier from Luke about what we normally call the Good Samaritan. How do we know he had compassion? Because he did something. He helped that man. He acted on the emotion he was feeling. That is compassion. If you don't feel compassion toward others, you need to talk to God about what may be wrong inside. And if you say, oh, I, I feel for the poor, I feel for the sick, I feel for this person with a need, and you don't do anything about it, I'm sorry, folks, you don't have compassion. I don't have compassion if I do not act on what I'm feeling. What does Jesus say? I have compassion on them. Why? Because they have continued with me three days. Any supplies they may have brought, they probably brought snacks, they probably brought some food, but they weren't planning to stay three days. So anything they had with them, they had eaten by then. They were hanging on Jesus' every word, and they were willing to stay even though they now had nothing to eat. They were eager. Someone said their eagerness to remain with him had brought about the need, and it deeply touched his heart. They were hungry. Some of you may be hungry right now. Jesus could relate to them. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us. He was hungry. Do you remember that? Matthew 4, during his temptation, he fasted for 40 days, and then he began to be hungry. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet he did not sin. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He relates to us. He understands when you are hungry, when you are tired, when you are suffering. He understands he relates to us. So he was empathizing with their hunger. And he says, they're hungry, they have nothing to eat, they haven't eaten. They've been here with me for three days. If I send them away, they will faint. They will fall down. They will become weary, they will give out. That's what that means. They will collapse physically. Because some of them have come a long way. And truly, I'm sure some of them did come a long way. That also may be a roundabout way of Mark saying that they were Gentiles. They've come a long way. They were far off. Do you ever feel like Jesus may know your need, but he's not concerned about it? It's too small. He doesn't have time for that. He has other things on his mind. He's running the universe. This is telling us that not only does Jesus know your need, he cares. 
Because God who knows our need but doesn't do anything about it, what good is that? He knows our need. He cares about our need. He is willing to act to meet our need. So often we worry, how am I going to pay for this? Maybe you're concerned, how am I going to eat? Or clothes, my kids are going out of their clothes, how am I going to clothe them? Jesus understood that, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. He said, therefore do not worry. Literally, do not take thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek, unbelievers seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What are these people doing? They've stayed with him for three days. Are all of them believers? Probably not. But they are interested in what he's doing. They're interested in what he's saying. And they're continuing with him. They are depriving themselves of an appetite, in this case, food. And they're ignoring that, ignoring their growling stomachs, in order to hang on his every word. And what did Jesus tell the multitude on the mount? If you put first the kingdom of God, if that's what you seek first, the kingdom of God, his righteousness, these other things that you need, they'll be provided. Is that what happened for these people? Absolutely, yes. Third point for this morning, Christ satisfies your need. I'm in verse four. Then the disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, if you mark in your Bible, put a box around, circle, underline, do something to that word satisfy. I'm gonna come back to it. How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now think with me. Didn't Jesus just feed a multitude of 5,000 men a few weeks ago? Don't you think they would remember that? I think they would remember that. But the, the disciples' question revealed the hardness of their hearts. We're going to talk about that next time. They weren't just dull, <laughs> stupid. They didn't understand. And we'll talk more about why they didn't understand next time. But this kind of question, how can one satisfy these people with bread? You would think they would remember. It would have made a big impression on me if I had seen and helped distribute what God gave for 5,000 people. But more than that, when I was reading this last year, I read through the book of Mark several times before we ever started this series, I wanted to see what was there, what popped out to me. And what stood out to me here, it, I smiled, I may have laughed when I came to this, because who are these people? These are his disciples. They're Jewish people. Did they know what we would call the Old Testament? Did they know their scriptures? Yes. How can one feed so many people in the wilderness? Is there anything in their national history that would have had God providing food for people in the wilderness. Can anybody think of anything like that? Yes, it, we, it's in the book of Exodus. Almost 40 years, God fed his people, granted, the Jews, but he fed people in the wilderness for almost 40 years. Don't you think they would have remembered that? Wouldn't you think? I would think that they would remember that. I personally wouldn't, because here's our problem. We see God meet some need. I prayed for this relative, or I prayed for myself, for healing, and God healed me, and then the next time we're sick. 
this may be it. I may die. And we get all worried. There's some financial need. And God comes through. And we can pay that bill. Or we can do whatever. And the next time, oh, where am I going to get the money? Because this is what we do. Am I the only one here? Some of you are nodding your heads. Thank you for being there with me. We forget. So that may be what's going on. But there may be something else here. There may be something else here. Look at it again. Verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? I'm going to emphasize a different couple of words. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people here in the wilderness? And that may be part of it. Because who are these people? This crowd of 4,000 was primarily Gentiles. That was the area of the Decapolis. They were Gentiles. So maybe they were remembering, yeah, we saw you work this great miracle for 5,000 men and however many women and children, and that was for the people of God. And yes, Moses brought down manna. Ultimately, you did, God, for us for 40 years. Yeah, I know that story. I learned that as a child. Yes, that was for your people. But how are you going to provide for these people here in the wilderness? That may be the question. Why would you do that for Gentiles? Because part of what Jesus was teaching them when they went into Tyre and Sidon, part of what Jesus was teaching them in healing the man who was deaf and mute, he's teaching them that salvation, yes, it's to the Jew first, but it's also to the Greek. That's what Paul wrote in Romans. It's for everyone who believes. And this would have been reassuring to what we believe were the recipients of Mark's gospel. He was writing primarily to the Romans. He was writing to Gentiles. Verse 5, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? He doesn't even bother with their question. He just says, all right, how much? What do you have? What do you have? Empty your pockets, empty your bags. What do you have? And they looked, and they had seven. It's interesting that in the previous time, they found a little boy who had five loaves, three fish, a lunch, a snack. Here it seems like, as I read it, that he's asking the disciples, what do you got, guys? We're going to use your lunch to feed these people. Which is even funnier if they were been out of shape that he was going to feed the Gentiles. Loaves, not what you bought from the store, this nice sliced bread, not, not a loaf, but this was probably more like pita bread. It, it's thin bread. And that's what he's going to break for them. Verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. When it says he gave thanks, we've talked about this before, the traditional prayer would be something like this, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, king of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. He's giving thanks. Same thing, if you pray before you eat, you give thanks, offer a blessing, however you want to say it, that's what we're doing. That's what he did. That's what the Jewish people did at that time. And it says, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. Broke, same as last time. Broke, one time event. Broke it. But then it says, he kept giving it. That is a different kind of verb, that he kept on giving. So this is continuous. Somehow he broke it once, but he keeps giving it out and giving it out and giving it out and giving it out and giving it out. And his disciples are distributing it. Jesus did what only he could do. And then he had his disciples do what they could do. He involved them. 
Seems like he took their food, broke it, and said, here, give it out. Give it out to everybody. And that's what they're doing. Verse 7, they also had a, small, a few small fish. Where'd those come from? I don't know. Was somebody holding out that he wasn't going to share his fish at first? I don't know. But they had a few small fish, and he, having blessed them, he said, he said to set them also before them. It almost seems, in reading Mark, perhaps as an example to the Gentiles, that he prays twice. That he prays once for the bread, that was Jewish custom, and then he prays again as we distribute the fish. Verse 8, so they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. And those who had eaten were about 4,000. They ate and were filled. If you marked your Bible for satisfied, this is it. Circle, put a box around the word filled. Same word, translated satisfy up in verse 4. And it's the same one that was used in the previous miracle as well. It literally means glutted. You, after the Thanksgiving or Christmas feast. Okay? Oh, man, shouldn't have had those seconds. That's how they felt. I appreciated what a couple of different commentaries said here. One is that our God is not a stingy God. Someone else said, when God is in it, there's always a surplus. Whether he feeds five, four or 5,000, he doesn't just give them a snack, he gives them a full dinner. So here I want to go for one more cross-reference. This is Matthew 5, 6. Again, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what will happen for them? They shall be filled. There's our word. Those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, they're going to be filled. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be glutted. That's the word. That's the idea. Now, seven. I haven't said anything about seven yet, but we had seven loaves, and we're about to have seven baskets. So what's the significance of that? Don't want to overstate it, but I'm going to give you two ideas here. One, talked about this a lot in Revelation, it's the number of completion, the number of fullness. That could be all it means. If we apply that, then it means Jesus is enough for the whole world. He provides for the needs of the whole world. That could be it. I'm going to share a different idea for you, though. Going back to the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, the people of God are ready to come into the promised land. And what we read there, I'll leave you to look it up on your own if you want to. Chapter 3, verse 10, there's a list of the nations that were part of the promised land at that time when Joshua was bringing the people into the land. Guess how many there are? Seven. Very good guess. That is correct. There are seven of them. When Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 13, he's giving a history of the, the nation of Israel, and he says basically the same thing, that there were seven nations. I'm going outside the Bible for a second. This is tradition. This is Jewish tradition. But Jewish tradition said that those seven nations, their descendants, were gathered in one particular area of the surrounding promised land. You know where they were? The Decapolis. So Jewish tradition says that those who were the Gentiles dwelling in the promised land, those seven nations, that they're in the Decapolis now. So what are we saying? When there were 5,000 Jewish men, there were 12 baskets left over. 
We could say that that was one per disciple. We could say that there was one for each tribe of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe so. Now, there are seven baskets left over. Perhaps representing each of those nations. What's the point? Jesus is enough for the world. Jesus is the bread of life for the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes. Jesus is the bread of life for the Gentiles, those seven nations. He is the bread of life for the entire world. It's not just that there were baskets, though, okay? The word basket here is different from the word used back in the feeding of 5,000 in chapter 6. So here's my visual aid, guys. Work with me. Feeding of 5,000, we get 12 of these little lunch boxes. That's the picture. Seven large baskets. They would have been larger than this. You know how large they were? When you get to the book of Acts, when Paul was let over the wall in a basket, it was big enough for a person to get in. We could probably get a child in there if we had to. But big baskets, very plentiful. And, and that blows our minds, doesn't it? Because we started with seven, imagine, big pancakes, basically. Something that size, a, a stack of pancakes. And somehow, miraculously, Jesus has fed 4,000 plus people, could have been as many as 10,000 people, and now they have leftovers that are more than they started with. Second time this has happened. God is a generous, bountiful God. He has the ability to satisfy. He has the ability to meet the needs and beyond. Whatever your need is this morning, whether it's health, whether, whether it's finances, whether, whether it is an addiction, whether it is a relationship, God is able to go way beyond what we ask or think, right? He is able to do all of his will. What did they do with the leftover fragments? We don't know. It doesn't say. It makes sense to me that they were given out to the people who had come because remember, some of them were having to travel a long way away. They didn't have any other food, so it would have sustained them where they needed to go. What we do know, and we'll get to it next time, is that it didn't go to the disciples because they didn't have bread when they had their conversation a little bit later. And verse 9 finishes, and he went, sent them away, sent away the multitude. Immediately they got in the boat. He got in the boat with his disciples, and they came to the region of Dalmanutha, also called Magdala. So we'll pick it up there. That's where we're going to pick it up next time. But what have we been talking about today? That Christ knows your need. Each time I've come up to that, there may be something that has popped in your mind. There may be a need that you are well aware of that is on your mind that kept you awake last night. He knows. It is not a mystery to him. But more than simple knowledge, he cares. Folks, he cares. He cares about your pain. He cares about your fears. He cares about your need. He cares about your poverty. He cares about your hunger cares about your tiredness whatever it is he cares and it's not just a oh yes i as a great politician care more than anyone who's gone before me and certainly more than my opponent it's not that kind of care that oh talk is cheap no it's a it's an action it's a compassion that acts so it matters. Yes, he knows. Yes, he cares, but it's not just an emotion, it's not just a head knowledge, it is an action. 
he is going to act on behalf of those who love him. He's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's going to work his holy will. And when he does it, he's going to satisfy your need. Now, it may not be in the way that you think. It may not be in the way you hope. It certainly may not be in the time frame that you would like. He's not a genie in a bottle. But when he meets a need, he satisfies it, and he has more than enough. He has more than enough grace for you. Remember Paul? He had the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. And he prayed three times, Lord, take this from me. Take this away from me. He asked three times, and he probably asked more than that, but it's recorded. I asked three times, and what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient, which is a really nice, elaborate way of saying no. But my grace is sufficient for you. My grace will abound to meet your need. That was Paul's need at that moment. And whatever need it is that you have, if it's truly a need, we read from Matthew 6, your heavenly Father knows your need before you ask. He knows, he cares, and he will satisfy. Jesus knows that our deepest need, our greatest need, is forgiveness of sin. And there could be somebody here in the room, child or adult today, somebody joining us online, that you don't know that you have your sins forgiven. That's what Jesus was doing. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He cared enough about that deepest need to die in your place so that you could have forgiveness of sins. What is your part? To believe, to accept that free gift of salvation, to recognize, to acknowledge Him as the Savior. You can do that this morning. You can do that right now to trust Him. You say, I've done that. Good. I'm glad. Are you satisfied with Christ this morning? He is our salvation for sure. Is he your satisfaction? Do you have an emptiness inside that you're seeking to fill other ways with other things, with other relationships? He is our all in all. And if you aren't satisfied with him, then that's something to confess this morning and to turn from. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Whatever God may be doing in your heart, obey him. Listen to him. The Holy Spirit is our real teacher here. And he can apply this exactly the way you need it this morning. He may be convicting of sin. If he is, your part is to confess it and the purpose to forsake it, to turn your back on it and go away from it. If you are dissatisfied this morning, you've been complaining to God or complaining to others, return to him. Find your satisfaction in him. His grace is sufficient. He's able to meet your need. Trust him. But I can't, but I won't, but he... 
put away your arguments and believe what the Bible says, that his grace is sufficient and that he satisfies needs. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. That you would continue to teach this passage to us because there are likely ways that these ideas will come up this week. They may come up later today. Lord, give us grace to believe that you are enough. That yes, you know our needs, but you care about our needs and you've provided for our greatest need through Christ. You meet our true needs of food, clothing, shelter. You're going to do that. You're going to continue to do that because you know that we have those needs. So Lord, may we do our part to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and then see you add those things that we need. May we obey you. May we seek after you. Lord, for anyone who does not yet have a relationship with you, may today be the starting point. May today be the day some child understands and believes the gospel, some adult understands and believes the gospel. We thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.